Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. As one run ends, the next run is poised to take its place, with hardly a moment to catch our breath between events. That makes this This Is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survived the experience, unlike the plant swordsman who turned out to be a villain and poisoning his son, Gasp, who was really <gasps> shocked. <laughs> the Gasp. Well... I know that I would not be prepared to talk about today's books without the help of the one, the only, Mr. Asleep at the Wheel, but never if he's driving, Josh! Hola! And, yeah. and I am so fucking stoked to jump into these books today because I feel like there's a lot of room for interpretation and fair criticism of what's going on. And knowing that this is the point at which New Mutants is about to roll over into X of Swords and... That Empire is kind of ending if you don't count all of the Aftermath stuff. And it kind of makes me wonder, have you guys ever read a crossover where, or a major arc, something where they've just hyped it to death and you finish it and you go, no, seriously, nothing fucking happened. No. Maybe X. It, you know what? For me, it's actually Death of Wolverine. And I'm going to explain why. <laughs> I kept thinking he died before that. <laughs> there was so much Death of Wolverine ramp up. I was convinced he died at the end of the arc, and then they're like, oh, nope, that wasn't heaven. He actually was just walking around. And I'm like, no, that's he's dead. That's heaven, isn't What? So for me, at the end of Death of Wolverine, which, you know, gave birth to Logan Legacy and, you know, all of those stories, I kind of felt like nothing happened. Yeah, Wolverine died, but he could have died some other way. And it wouldn't have cost me 85 titles. I heard a vote for AVX. And I know what you mean, because Scott was back with the X-Men within like a year. So sound off, guys. I got to know, what crossovers would you guys cross right back off? Anything that Jeff Johns has done in the last like seven years. Like Forever Evil was only forever because it took him like two and a half years to finish like rolling it out. And all the other crossover titles had moved on by the time it finished. But I mean, Doomsday Clock, uh, Trinity War, like... Jonah, I'm pretty sure you had some choice words for Secret Wars the first. Yeah, and you know what? I would love it if that was stricken from memory. There was a lot going on. It was a really... It was a year-long event where nothing happened. That's impressive. I mean, Thing quit the Fantastic Four and She-Hulk joined, but again, I would have just as readily accepted that in a way that didn't bleed me dry. Now, Kyle, we've talked about crossovers a million times. You and I were both really positive about War of the Realms. We felt like it didn't maybe get all of the fanfare it deserved. But have there been any crossovers where you've just been like, no, I just wasted all of my cash? Um, Inhumans versus X-Men. Oh, fucking see, I thought you might say Age of X-Men. I was going to say Age of X-Men, but... I kind of figured that you were more referring to 
company-wide crossovers instead of uh, just X-Men crossovers. So Yeah, yeah. line-wide versus company-wide. Yeah. That's a really important distinction I hadn't even considered. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely see it as in Humans versus X-Men that as something that just was disappointing and didn't really lead anywhere. Ooh, that's a good one. And I know we've talked extensively about how that's the language of marketing, right? That's not the language of writers. That's the language of marketing. And it's the marketing's job to make a book sound fucking eternal and breathtaking. And this is the one to change them all. And I actually want to bring up a specific parable that is kind of how these things happen. Now, something I know Kyle and Jonah and I all really, really love is we have a passionate love of Disney. And Maddie, I know you and I share our passionate love of live theater. And to that extent, I can come up with two very different examples of how that kind of can result in small to large waves. Now, a small wave example is Rent. When Rent first opened, the order of the show was a little bit different. They realized that it did not make any sense to split up I'll Cover You and Christmas Bells, so they ultimately moved Where We're Okay goes. Now, that just means that it's a little bit different in what I've affectionately referred to my whole life as the TBBRBB, the Big Black Rent Bible Book. Most of you probably know it as Rent, the Coffee Table Book. But that minor change did result in some stuff being a little bit off, right? A bigger, more noticeable example in the form of Disney would be how many Disney animated directed video sequels were actually the first three to four episodes of a planned animated series that was canceled from production. These include the second Cinderella film, the Atlantis movie, as well as a number of others. Sometimes they would even start the production on a film, cancel it, and reuse those sequences, such as Bambi 2 being made almost exclusively from cuts of Dumbo 2. But the reason that this relates to comics is sometimes things are in place and in effect way too far in advance for people to truly understand how these all happen. When Fear Itself, the event from a number of years ago, was launched, it was launched with the intent for Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction, who would work together on Iron Fist, Uncanny X-Men, just to name a couple, they were supposed to co-write it. But what ultimately wound up happening was Ed Brubaker's career took off in too large a way, and he had to abandon the project. Fear itself meant to be a combination of their two books, Captain Amer their, the two of their books, Captain America from Ed Brubaker, as well as Thor and Iron Man from Matt Fraction. It lost that binding tie of Captain America, so when Bucky is assassinated in the second issue and then inexplicably restored from the dead during the epilogue, kind of sounds familiar, She-Hulk, and Black Panther, and I guess maybe even a little bit Teddy... It left people very confused, and what was more notable than any of that was the amount of books put in place because of it. The Defenders by Matt Fraction and the Dodsons only ran about 12 issues when it was literally expected to be the biggest book at Marvel. The resultant Fearless Defenders and Fear Itself Battle Scars were downgraded in cover quality down to like interior style cover paper and quietly died in the corner. I bring this up because so frequently with these crossovers, they get so far ahead of themselves that then when something goes horribly wrong, like perhaps a pandemic, there's all of this futzing around to make it work. And I really feel that that is what happened with Empire. 
there is something so disjointed about the way this narrative fell apart in its own hands, despite some of the best pieces they could have put on the table. And if there's anything left to say, even, we are talking today about Empire Number no. 6, with story by Al Ewing and Dan Slott, script by Al Ewing, artist Valerio Shidi, color artist Marte Gracia, letterers VCs Joe Caramagna, with cover art by Jim Chung and J. David Rumps. The reign of the Katati comes to a swift end in this dense conclusion to the Empire storyline. Reed Richards heads to Wakanda in Tony's suit, Ada not so fallen T'Challa, while Tony focuses on negating a fusion reaction occurring within the sun with the help of Wiccan, Captain Marvel, and the Human Torch. Mantis and Sue Storm drive away the Katati being inside of She-Hulk, just in time for Jen to join nearly the entire Marvel roster in a final battle against Koi. Now, holy shit, I just forgot who was recording with us. <laughs> now, Josh, I believe you were having... No, my god, now I know. Uh, now, Josh, I believe you were having a conversation with Nico in the green room about this. Nico and I were talking before, and one of the things that kind of struck me about this was I felt Empire 6, and really Empire as a whole, was like a joke that makes you say, like, oh, that's funny, but doesn't actually make you laugh. Like, I caught what were supposed to be the big moments, I think. You know, I felt like a lot of the connections that were made were very clever, but there wasn't anything in this issue or, or much of the series, really, that actually hit me or made me feel anything. Nothing in Empire evoked any emotional reaction in me whatsoever. The split up with Mr. Fantastic in an Iron Man suit and Iron Man using Mr. Fantastic suit was clever. I thought that, you know, the solution being that the iron was too dense was clever. The way that they queued up with the sounds. What is the sound of, you know, that will save your world and Reed in the Iron Man suit gets to say Avengers Assemble. Like, that was cool and well done. But like, you also saw it like telegraphed a mile away. And it was like, it felt less like a crescendo. And, and I think this is what Nico was saying about kind of the big effect of, you know, with the marketing and the crossovers and, you know, that we didn't get 100% the story that was supposed to be. It felt less like a crescendo, like a bunch of these things all coming together at once, as much as it did a lot of simultaneous deus ex machinas, allowing us to, you know, make this the final issue. And, you know, it's really interesting because you said a closer to complete experience, and that's very much at the forefront of my mind because, once again, having a green room conversation with Kyle, Kyle and I realized because Kyle read a few more tie-ins, we had vastly different Empire experience. Yeah, definitely. So I pretty much read the, the Captain America, the Captain Marvel, and Lords of Empire tie-in, as well as Fantastic Four. And... To be honest, the Lords of Empire books, they gave us, they gave me a lot of good backstory on Sequoia and the Swordsman. Um, I don't really think that any of it had any weight on the, the main series. The Captain America one was just kind of a, uh, fun romp through Mexico City with a giant plant mountain thing captain marvel was completely unrelated um other than when she'd come back and back to earth to fight stuff i think the most important tie-in was fantastic four where you got to see franklin and valeria dealing with the terran enemies that had decided to to side with the katati and them summoning 
Wolverine and Spider-Man to join the Fantastic Four. So, wait, now that I have to ask, because people keep mentioning that, and I, did I miss a page in Empire or something? It wasn't in it. It wasn't mentioned in Empire. It was all in Fantastic Four, where they were under attack by the uh, the priests of Pama or whatever they were called. Under attack from Kiki Palmer. Yes. Got it. And apparently Reed had a special computer that would summon Spider-Man and Wolverine, Hulk, and um, Ghost, Rider? Ghost Rider. Because they had- Holy shit, it's the classic new Fantastic Four! Yes. We have been talking about that extensively on the HTML Fantastic Four feed with Jonah and Maddie. Oh, okay. So, um, because they were trying to save the, uh, the Korean Skrull kids- they use the computer to summon those heroes, but only Wolverine and, and Spider-Man showed up. So they got their own little Fantastic Four outfits. And when Valerio was like, we don't think the the computer's working properly, Reed's like, well, that's because there's, alre- there's already two members of the Fantastic Four. So, um... Oh, shit! That was that. And then... This past week's issue was them trying to save the two kids again, and... Jovan and Nicola. Yep. And they had to convince them that their lives weren't only about fighting each other's races. They made progress by working together, and that was alluded to in the pages of Empire Six. But there was just so much more that was that was brought to the story in Fantastic Four. I'm just so fucking angry that I didn't get that. And Kyle, we had actually had a, a, a discussion about it last night where I made the comment that I thought that was really shitty, how much of the story was not in Empire. And you said, well, I mean, it is on the checklist, and you're absolutely right. But it made me think about something, and this is something Josh and I are a bit obsessed with, along with our friends Blake and you know Nathan from the show and Chongo and Rod. We all really love talking about collected editions and when i think about a crossover it winds up falling into four omnibus editions there's the prelude or road to said crossover then there's usually the crossover itself then there is the omnibus edition of the tie-ins and then usually lastly there's some sort of fallout if there's enough material to generate a fallout volume and i do not tend to find that books outside of the numeric value of the crossover nomenclature. So for Empire, that would be the two preludes, the two epilogues, and the six issues of Empire. Whereas for X of Swords, that would be the 21 individual issues of X of Swords. I don't tend to think if you're not in those numbers, you should be required reading. If your narrative would go in a second volume, you should not be considered required reading. And I feel kind of betrayed that Fantastic Four did not find itself in the don't skip this shit numbering. I understand it would have been unusual to go Empire, Fantastic Four, Empire, Fantastic Four. But you know what? This crossover came out weekly and that was unusual too. Yeah, it should have been made a little more clear because one of the things that I felt was mismarketed about it was I felt like the Fantastic Four really didn't have a place in it, like that they were superfluous for the most part. And that's from not having read the Fantastic Four issues yet. That's from them just sitting in a pile next to my bed and, like, waiting to be read. Because I got a new Longshot hardcover in the mail during the week, and I read that instead. But So oh, we're going to be covering Longshot with uh, an Anne Nascenti superfan 
in the next couple of months. I'm really excited. Uh, I just got the comic book artist so Tori Sheehan is a, an Nascenti super fan, oh. and she cannot wait to get her hands on this long shot book. She's so excited. Oh, yeah. It's so good. I It made me, when I was at my LCS yesterday, I, I actually dug through and I picked up the uh, old Uncanny Annual 10, which I'd never read, which is like Longshot's next appearance after that, just so I could go like follow, do like the direct follow. But um, but anyway, so yeah, that's a little my fault that I didn't read the Fantastic Four as they were coming out. But also, like, like you said, like if that's second trade, like it shouldn't be. Yeah, I thought I was reading the main story stuff and there was a little lacking like there was some confusion in what i needed to read because i knew i didn't need to read all 847 items on the checklist like that i knew and all i wanted to read was the fucking union <laughs> well that was the only so i realized after i said it that there was nothing that made me feel anything i take that back there was nothing in the present story of empire that made me feel anything because the flashback to billy's and teddy's wedding is the only emotionally resonant beat of the story and and that does I, I apologize for saying there weren't any um, earlier. Well, that's buried under so much exposition at this point. And I, I hate to, to, to be picky, but I'm actually personally frustrated that when we see a bunch of the Wedding East stuff in this upcoming Avengers Aftermath issue that they're doing, I'm kind of annoyed that it's called Avengers Epilogue. It shouldn't, I mean, frankly, it's the wedding of Billy and Teddy. Like, let them have this. I know that there's a long tradition of Avengers issues featuring weddings. The new Avengers annual featured the wedding of Luke and Jessica. And, you know, people get married in annuals going back to the Fantastic Four annual number three. But I specifically think when we're talking about gay representation, yes, make them feel like they're part of the community, but also put a spotlight on it because it is so rare. And I feel really bad saying it, but I don't like the cover of the epilogue. The... Billy and Teddy, like, something's weird about some of the faces. I don't know if Jim Chung just had to draw the same faces too many times in the last couple of months, but there is something as saccharine as the way the beats played out in the emotion of the epilogue cover that really sums up a lot of how I felt about Empire. A lot of fun, a lot of saccharine, and I'm still hungry afterward, and not because I had such a good time. So... And this is nothing to do with Empire's production schedule, how it was released. This has to do with, you know, the horror show that is Earth circa 2020 AD. Did anyone feel weird or seeing Black Panther like like it was watching a video of someone after they passed? Because reading that Empire issue a day or two after the death of Chadwick Boseman... Just, and he just comes back from the dead like and then it was Black Panther. Hard. Oh god, like that and that that was not like an empire hitting me. That was just like it almost made me feel like I hope they rest this character or do something like like this character on the page just feels like Chadwick now and I don't because I can't separate them. Like, I don't know how I feel about reading him. Like, it feels a little weird reading him in this moment. Uh, I completely agree. It was something that was like, oh, oh, no, that that that's not going to happen in, in our world. On, on this earth, that can't happen. And it was just so, it, it was just, it was a weird feeling just looking at that happen on the pages of the comic and just being like, hey, I just want to echo some sentiments that I, I was hearing Empire as an entire crossover 
wasn't about what I thought it was going to be about, and that's fine. It was a complete change of pace of that actually being the Kotati being the aggressors, as opposed to Teddy leading this new um, alliance between the Kree and the Skrull. But I feel like what I was set up to believe this entire crossover was going to be about wasn't what it was about, and those expectations of whether or not I was excited for them or not, because I was pretty lukewarm, it feels like so much just fell flat. Like, I, I am so lost in the purpose of this story, and what were we trying to tell? What was the entire narrative? What were the themes? I don't recognize anything. It feels like this story kind of just happened, but also didn't happen. So much was a split narrative of the Kotati trying to take over Earth, but we have to deal with Teddy and the Kree Skrull, who have what it seems like were just sitting on that ship for I don't know how long. And then it was, you know, Stark and Reed, white man whining about how hard it is to save the universe over and over again. I'm just like, I, I, what happened? Was this real? Did this issue actually happen? Was Empire crossover that everybody else got to read, or did we just make this up? And like, it's a weird fever dream. Because I really, I'm just so unsure on what this story was trying to tell us. So Empire came to an end, and to a book whose ending I very much enjoyed, but didn't really care for the beginning, New Mutants 12. If we're going to talk about New Mutants today, we should do it right. So we're covering New Mutants number 12, written by Ed Brisson with artist Marco Filo, color artist Carlos Lopez, letterers VCs Travis Lannan, with design by Tom Muller, and cover art by Mike Dumbundo. Doxing in the Age of Hox Pox Dux. Hot off a tip from Trinary, Magic recruits the help of Danny Moonstar and Glob Herman to track down the office of the anti-mutant propaganda machine, Docs. Once there, things get heated as the discussion turns to that of the consequences of revealing the identities and whereabouts of mutant individuals. Plus, monsters run amok in Nova Roma. I'm gonna... Yeah, I'm gonna, um... I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this story, and it's it's from a weird perspective. I don't like doxing of any kind. And I don't necessarily like the idea that the mutants have no choice but to become increasingly violent and dark. And it's not that I don't like darkness, but at no point did it seem like we're going to dox you right back was ever shown as this is revenge. Right. There's a difference between justice and revenge. And I'm not saying that, especially as a minority class person, I can't understand a desire for revenge. But I did not feel that the heroes behaved heroically, nor at any point was anybody ever acknowledging the fact that the heroes behaved unheroically. Not necessarily evil, not as aggressors. I'm not saying they were bad, but I felt this issue just sort of sat. Well, I think part of the issue is eye for an eye, tit for tat is a method that people think means fair, and that's not the solution we want to see. I understand it might be too idealistic and optimistic to say that there's always a peaceful slash better solution to figuring out how to get that justice as opposed to revenge that you deserve without compromising your own morals. But it felt like they didn't understand 
what that means and how to accomplishment accomplish it in the terms of this story. So, I mean, when we're talking about this story too, like we could break it into two parts because there's the first part and the second part. And I think we all have very, like from what I'm hearing, we have very different emotions about the first part of this book and the second part of this book, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I would completely oh, for sure. feel like an A plot and a B plot that could have literally been from two different issues. And and they were derived from two different issues. The the Pilgrim Nebraska yeah. the Pilgrim Nebraska incident and Nova Roma and the first outing with Armor and Boom Boom. Two different instances from two different issues from two different arcs, actually. Yeah. Well, so the first half of this I liked better um when I the first time I saw it when it was called Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Um I didn't think ah. it worked as well for this. It just felt beneath Ilyana. Um, and I don't know, like, I was excited to see Nova Roma, and then I was disappointed that Amara's dad doesn't have, like, a big pot belly anymore. Um, like, I feel like there's a certain shape he's, you know, he's supposed to, you know, <laughs> look, he's supposed to look like, you know, like uh, an overweight, balding, like, dad from Brooklyn or something just wearing a toga. To um, look like he's put on his quarantine 20. That's not fair. Yes. Yes. And Nova Roma um, is quarantined, so like... <laughs> I mean, the glob content was so good, and, you know, I also kind of wonder, 12 issues into this, like, why is Brisson writing this book? Like, we know what the purpose of a lot of these other books are. We know what the story the writers want to tell. Like, you know, you hear Leah talk about, like, finding that niche, or like, oh, this opened up. Like, when we have Krakoa, like... How are you going to figure out these protocols and how do you like so many of these stories, X-Force even, you know, the main line, obviously, Excalibur with mutant magic and apocalypse, you know what these stories they're trying to tell are like, I feel like the only reason Brisson is writing this is so that way he can, you know, cut other stories short and sneak in like four or five pages of good glob content like his only like the mission statement of this book is find reasons to, you know, tell good glob side stories but i don't know what they're doing with this like i don't know the direction new mutants is heading or what we're supposed to be seeing from these characters the i guess the one nice thing is it does dovetail with wolverine nicely in the sense of that we're starting to see the ptsd phase of docs we're starting to see where the quiet and the lack of thread at home is feeling eerie to them that it's too good to be true that you know, they can't enjoy the calm because there's never been a time without a threat. And so maybe they see threats where they don't exist. Maybe, you know, they're they're stressed even when they shouldn't be. I like that. And I think having it come out in the same week as, or the same time as we're seeing Wolverine explicitly deal with it on another line is helping to emphasize that point that like these characters don't know how to accept a happy ending. Um, and that's going to be a problem. But, like, the actual story, like, what we're seeing them do just feels why. And funny enough, that's, you're echoing something Kyle said a full year ago. Kyle asked when this run of New Mutants began, what's the point? The only thing that unites them is at one point they weren't the adult X-Men. And, Kyle, do you think that's changed in any way at this point? I, no. It it doesn't feel like it's changed at all. I, I... I have to agree with Josh. I don't understand what the point of this book is. I want to like it, but it just feels so disjointed from the rest of the from the rest of Krakoa. 
I also think the constantly changing art is harder here than it is other places. When there's a sudden switch on Excalibur or X-Force, I feel like it looks smoother, but the artistic choices here wind up feeling very kind of 90s, kind of grungy, undergroundy, Jim food kind of bubbly. And it sometimes creates a sense of disharmony with the other stories. I also feel like New Mutants is suffering from having too large of a cast. It feels like, listen, I'm not complaining that it's the Ileana show because I want the Ileana show. But Ileana, Tabby, Magma, Chamber, Mondo, Danny, Birdo. Yeah, it's a lot. Rain. <laughs> I'm forgetting people. <laughs> it's, there are so many people here, and in conjunction with a shifting art style that seems to be passing through other artists' hands, there's a lot going on. I understood what New Mutants was trying to do when the team was trying to convince Sam to come back with them to Krakoa. But after that happened, it basically became a, well, now what do we do? Like, they kind of just threw their hands up and shrugged because they didn't really know, well, without Sam, what's our purpose? They felt like they were lost. So it now feels like the writers are lost in what they're trying to tell us. Well, and I wonder if that has to do with the fact that when the book began, it was a co-venture by Hickman and Brisson, seemingly to just bring the Shi'ar back to Earth. Once all of the Shi'ar stuff was taken care of and the brood egg and the way that tied into Uncanny, Hickman had his fill and left New Mutants. And, you know, Maddie, I know the power of Hickman's voice is certainly a factor for you. Do you see a difference in the book without Hickman or would you have never realized the writing changed? You know, I would be hard pressed to tell you exactly what issue it changed, but I could venture to guess it was the last issue that focused on the mate from volume one. I definitely see the difference, not only in the in the artistic style that's that's ever changing, but I definitely can hear a distinct difference. And it seems like coming out of issue number seven, the end of the the space era going into issue eight, the first trip to Nova Roma, there's no sense of direct continuity for me. There's no there's no sense of, of discernible linear time. I don't quite understand what the team even is at this point. If you had to tell me, name the entire roster of the New Mutants team right now, I don't know that I would include anyone from volume one. I think it would be Amara, Glob Herman, Magic sometimes, boom, boom. Armor sometimes, and hey, Wildside. Wildside is more of a new mutant than 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 any of the the film squad. (laughs) (laughs) The film squad, yeah, that's quite an interesting perspective on it. And I love that Glob Herman is you know Glob Herman, but something that the New Mutants is supposed to be about is diversity with Native American Danny, Brazilian Birdo, Scots Rain. Vietnamese karma, and I guess, as Josh pointed out, Adam Driver as young cannonball, (laughs) I find myself kind of wondering where the diversity is here for a book with so many people. Well, because you have Ed Brisson, who is, you know, which diversity boxes does Ed Brisson check? Maybe that's what it's suffering from is just, you know, like it's the wrong writer on it. Like it's not a knock against Brisson, but 
I would much rather see Vita take this title and focus it around a life in the uh, sextant. Is that what it's called? The Academos, where all of the uh, yeah, where all of the different generations of young crews are cohabitating. Like I would much rather see that than what we're getting now. Deep cut. I want to see Gail Simone do a Birds of Prey style book where she seeks to rectify dozens of years of damaging canon around the idea that even if it's the quote unquote female book, I mean, anybody who ever read Birds of Prey would know that as much as that book was about the women, that book dealt with the psychology of the men as well. Like, it's such a powerful title. I would love to see Gail come in and do her Domino, Deadpool, Birds of Prey treatment. Like, there are so many voices in comics. And you know what? Fuck it. I would love two New Mutants books. I would read New Mutants Old and New Mutants New New. I would just read those two titles, and the old one can have old people in it, and the new one can have new people in it. I guess that was kind of self-explanatory, but I just don't see why (laughs) I just don't see why I don't have it. I am not uh, Ted, Ted, uh, Ted and Alexis, and those and those Galapagos turtles. But what I am is a person who is warmer to Glob Herman. I don't know if I can call him a f- myself a fan of his character yet, but the ending talk between Glob and Magic, I think, was one of the most beautiful moments in comics. It was something that just resonated with me personally, because it's something that I've struggled with, which is allowing myself to feel anger. It's a weird conundrum that I went through where I wouldn't allow myself to feel that emotion because I kept saying I was too empathetic and that the other person's emotions come before my need for anger. But as Ileana pointed out, it's an emotion that if you don't let it take control and take over you, it's still really healthy to not only feel it, but to express it. So it was just a moment that I was like, yeah, a guy sharing his emotions. We love that. And we love someone confirming and telling him it's okay. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like in some way, the epilogue to the story, the Glob Herman story time, was a little bit of an apology for his role in the Riot at Xavier's, which is so many years in the past, both in book and despite being canon, and just in our actual sense of weird timey-wimey. So with that, I don't know that it was something that I was necessarily asking for, but I have seen in the few last issues of New Mutants where we've been figuring out what the tone is, Glob Herman and his Loxa recipe, Glob Herman having a plate of sandwiches for everybody. I'm glad there's more. They want to do more with the character than just have him be a little bit of comedic relief. But in that case, okay, that's fine. If this was Bob Herman's moment, then fine. But why don't we get the team together and actually, like, I don't know, mission it up? That's actually my question for you guys. I really need a little bit more linear out of my New Mutants going forward. And if I could pick any character from the many, many lines of young books that the X-Men have published over the years to join the team. I want to see, just because this is a really great time to recover lost characters, I really want to see them take the time to delve into somebody that doesn't really get the screen time anymore, like Paige. Paige had a lot of emphasis for a number of years, 
And then she just sort of fell off the radar. We've talked about how little Paige has appeared in the last couple of years. If, you know, we can, if wishes are whatever, I would put Maggot in the book. I know I'm a big Maggot fan and I'm like the only one, but Maggot, Stacey X, Joseph, that whole era of characters that came up alongside Cecilia Reyes that didn't click as well as she did still deserve love. And Maggot's basically young enough and he was in Gen X for a hot minute. And I feel like you can get away with it. What other young mutants would you guys want to see return to the fold? Uh, I have a mutant that I feel like she hasn't gotten her due diligence and deserves a spotlight for more for a much more wider audience, and that is Dust. Bring back Dust. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, Amp the Dust that. up. Yeah, I want Taki back. Hell yeah. Deep cut Skids, Rusty, Taki, bring them all back. I got room. I got ship. Let's just put him in ship. Skids is who I want. I want Skids. But I would I, I would buy a thousand issues if I had to to make it happen of a Dust series or a Dust-led series written by G. Willow Wilson. Like, I would, I would pay whatever I had to to help support that. I mean, as long as Sanaa is editing it, I'm down for whatever. Sanaa Aminat, for those who are not familiar, was the editor who spearheaded getting the Kamala Khan version of Ms. Marvel onto shelves. And she fought like hell, and Marvel supported her, and we now have a character who, despite being only around for about 10-15 years, is the lead of the new, unfortunately poorly reviewed, Marvel Avengers RPG. And that is so significant in and of itself, Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel both have had banner handfuls of years, and I couldn't be happier. But I have to imagine, Maddie, you just went through that yearbook special. You must have a hundred people that you want to see return to the pages of X-Men. Oh, undoubtedly, which is why I was going to say it was so uh, funny and, and appropriate that uh, Jonah brought up Dust. I, off the top of my head, would say Kevin Ford. I want to go with Wither. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder where uh, where uh, someone with the power of disintegration, which is so isolating, fits in this new world, this new cohabitative state. But otherwise, mm, if I had to, ooh, 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 all right. If I had to pick a real big weirdo, I want Bling. I just want someone yeah. in di- I want someone in diamond form all the time, and I think it's great that we're getting it from the Cuckoos because I think that that Phil Noto is doing such a deft job on lines for such a softly textured book. But yeah, I think Bling. I just want to see just a decked out diamond babe. Yeah, that's I. You'd have to be crazy to argue with that. I also wouldn't hate to see perhaps Wind Dancer show back up. Sophia was pretty cool, and I'm a pretty big fan of hers. Additionally, I think we've all basically said that there is not nearly enough mercury in the world. Oh, for sure. Josh, do you have a favorite kind of classic new mutie or Gen X kind of kid who just doesn't get enough spotlight these days? Paige is definitely. I mean, you remember she was on my top ship uh, a couple weeks ago. Paige is up there. I love Skids. I would love to see Skids back in this. Um, I also like the crew, and, and you know they're not a main title, but the uh, the college kids from the Chamber miniseries by Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, I want Neutrino Annihilator and all of those um, because they were looking. They were looking for this world, like they wanted to follow, you know, 
the Gospel of Magnus, and uh, they that's the original Magneto was right shirt. And um, like, I want to see them now embraced and, you know, having this place as well. Hey everybody and welcome. We are here doing an Empire wrap-up of issue 6, the conclusion of the Big Space Saga. I am Juan, along with... Rodders. And we'll be talking about everything that happened this last issue. So, Rodney, where are we at right now in Empire at this moment in time? We have two things about to destroy all of life on Earth. The Chakati are about to unleash their death plant to get the vibranium and take over all of life and the guy is about to become a god. And also, the sun is about to explode in about eight minutes. So two things that all the heroes have to stop for all of life on Earth. Eight minutes is destroyed. So can the heroes do it? This last issue basically feels like the climax of a film where there's so many things going on, where there's literally eight minutes to save the world. And where Reed and Mr. Fantastic are basically saying, this is where the big brains come into play. We have to split up and go to where people need us. So we have four things going on separately. We have the Kotati in Wakanda, invading Wakanda. They had just slain T'Challa. And then we have New York, where they have the two children, which are the Screek child and the Skrull child. And they're holding them, crystallizing them, basically to amplify their hatred and the history, because those two have the history of all of their empires inside of them. So they're amplifying all the hate that they've felt throughout the years and spreading it out into the world, so that everyone on the field is feeling their anger and their hatred and splitting up this alliance and then we have Wiccan up in space up front of the sun about to take it down with the help of Carol and Human Torch and then we have She-Hulk having her whole throwdown with Invisible Woman with Mantis and the Thing and it just feels like oh my god so much is going on oh, and we also have Mr. Fantastic and Iron Man trying to discover how to keep the sun from exploding and how to keep the Makati their leader Koi from becoming a god taking over all plant life in the universe. Hulkling's aunt was revealed <gasps> gasp to be the bad guy. She's Raquel who has been alive this whole time and has been secretly posing as Hulkling. So she had the real Hulkling hidden down in the basement power dampened by this big face mask covering him up and they're about to have a big major throwdown. So there's a lot going on in this last issue. Do you feel like it was too much going on? I personally don't feel like it was too much going on because I think in an event like this where they're trying to make everything super dire and make you feel the intensity, I like that there's so much going on because it feels like the actual world is actually in danger. The only thing that put me on negative was that some things just couldn't be explained because of COVID and we didn't get as many tie-ins. Because right. the tie-ins really helped. Like, when you were reading the Fantastic Four tie-ins, you understand why those two children are captured in the crystals in this last issue. And what's happening with them and how, actually, that gets turned around because of Franklin and Valeria. So, if you didn't read those tie-ins and you're just now reading this issue, you're like, well, where did that come from? Yeah. Because we didn't see any of that until this issue. Yeah, that, this event did have that weird disjointed release. Like, even the issues were released out of order, where, like, you had Captain Marvel's issues coming out out of order, so you didn't know exactly where Captain Marvel's story was falling, because in the main Empire story, she seemed like she was betraying the Alliance when she left with her sister 
L'Oreal, and then all of a sudden you're reading Captain Marvel, and she's out having this, like, CSI space thing going on, and then you're like, okay, so where does this fall? How, is this before this? Is this before that? And it's because of the release. It was really bad. Yeah, I just feel like some of these, some of the tie-ins were very important to the main story, and some of them weren't as important. Yeah. Like, the Captain Marvel one wasn't as important because the sister didn't show up in this, and the X-Men one wasn't important at all to this. It was just another fun side story they had, you know? And I'm trying to think of another tie-in that wasn't all that important. Captain America was not, well, kind of. Captain America was kind of important. You didn't really need to read it, but you understood what the rest of the world was trying, was doing, yeah. basically. Yeah. Like, all the all the armies were trying to come together. Some of the armies, like the Mexico's army and the United States army, they had to work together, even though some most of the time they're at odds, because it's a world problem, not a country problem. Yeah, that one definitely gave you the, like, boots-on-the-ground feel of, like, you got to see the everyday man's perspective while being with Captain America, you know, being their leader, and they got to be, like, normal people. Got to see what it felt like to be a hero for once, which was cool, but at the same time, it didn't feel extremely needed. It just gave you, like, the perspective of what everyone else is going on and then like you had the Savage Avengers tie-in that was oh, also right. taking place in Mexico that had nothing to do with nothing no. It was just basically um, Conan and Venom, like, they wanted to go visit a museum. And then the way to the museum, they had to stop Kotati from killing people. That was right. it. And then we had the other tie-in with the Avengers tie-in with Scarlet Witch and uh, Dr. Voodoo. Which, that was a fun story. I'm glad we, story. we haven't seen, we, well, we just see Scarlet Witch in X-Men, but we haven't seen Scarlet Witch in a while before that. And we haven't seen Dr. Voodoo in a while either. So I liked their story together. And Man-Thing was there as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was really hoping that Man-Thing would play a, a way bigger role. Considering he is the entity of, like, the mystical entity of nature. And they did absolutely, well, they did some stuff with him, but not anything major. The thing I would have liked that we've had in past events, like, think of one event I'm going to use as an example that is not very popular is, like, Avengers vs. X-Men. If you think about that event, that event had about 12 issues, correct? Mm-hmm. And some of those stories in those issues could have been side stories. They didn't need to be in there. But some little pieces of that helped the story go along. And I feel like if we would have had Empire not just be six issues, but like maybe 10, maybe 12 issues, and just instead of some of those side stories, just put them in here, make them work with the main story, it would have felt maybe more cohesive. And some people that had the plaint of, oh, it's going too fast, or it's skipping over things, we wouldn't have that plaint. Yeah. And also, it's, it's, interesting too because some of the side stories i felt should have been part of the main book like um celestial messiah when we actually got to learn about Corey and um, swordsman's relationship and you got to see how that was actually really meaningful you got to see how swordsman basically manipulated Corey into becoming this messiah and to buying into the messiah and seeing humans as the meatbags that they are and that story actually was really beautifully told and if you didn't read that issue you had no idea why you should care about these characters why they're bad guys what what was their motivation to this because all of that was told in that story and not in the main story exactly and the emperor hopeling one that's like a prelude to the empire with hopeling discovering that he needs to make the 
decree and the scrolls come together and be their king. Like that whole issue is very rainbow gay glory, but also it's just a very heartfelt and great issue that I feel like would have been great for it to be part of the main story because I feel like a lot of people, unless you're maybe on Twitter, probably didn't pick up that issue and read it because it wasn't part of the main story. Because let's face it, when people read events, they usually don't go for times. Like people hate times. Yeah. I personally love times. We, me and Juan, love times. We buy all the times. We buy all the times even for Secret Empire. Yeah. So, so times are the some of the best stories in my opinion. But that's not the opinion for everybody else. So that's why I feel like I liked how urgent this story was with just the six issues. Technically, I guess eight because we had two preludes of Fantastic Four and mm-hmm. Avengers. And then we're gonna have two aftermath coming actually tomorrow on Wednesday. But I feel like to make the majority more happy it would have been great to have maybe 10 to 12 issues yeah instead of all the tie-ins especially since a lot of the tie-ins got cut empire number six written by al ewing and dan slot script by al ewing art by valerio shiri and colors by marte gracia and lettering by DC's Joe Caramagna. We're at the point now where it's the crap or get out the pot moment with this event. Are they going to be able to stick the landing? Do you feel that they stuck the landing? I feel like they stuck the landing. I I feel like uh, one thing I was going to mention, obviously, the Thor thing. I don't, we didn't know where that came from. Yes. We didn't see that side story. Yes. I liked the moment. It was a beautiful moment. Um, but I would have loved to see how him connecting with Gaia, saying that was like, learning that from his mother. Mm-hmm. Not having the Thor tie-in kind of hurt this uh, story because, like, it, he just shows back up out of nowhere and kind of saves the day a bit. He basically takes away the connection that Koya has to Earth and to the plants on Earth. At that point, they're having their Hail Mary of swordsmen trying to get Sequoia to still sacrifice himself for the greater good by doing the uh, Death Sea. And this is where T'Challa comes back. He has his big moment, which kind of very deep and meaningful considering what has happened in real life. Yes. So T'Challa's reemergence was a pretty powerful moment and him having uh, the Excelsior sword and actually having a throwdown with swordsmen and being like, hey, when you were there with the old adventures, guess what? You did not know me. You know the old adventures, you don't know me, and they're having a throwdown. And swordsman basically threw his son under the bus. Sure did. Said, protect me, shield me. And that's where Koya's like, wait, 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 what? Yeah, that was, I mean, you can kind of see, I mean, obviously that plant being was a snake the whole time. And I feel like he kind of channeled, I don't really know the swordsman, but he channeled his humanity that maybe made him more of a snake um, in that moment, made him be more selfish and mm-hmm. want to survive at any cost which is why he used his son as a shield but that's one I mean that moment happening and then T'Challa you know um, freeing the son from the father and then killing the Death Seed with the father in that moment was very beautiful moment very powerful but that's one of the reasons why I think this Empire event really stuck the landing because in all this whole event this Fantastic Four and Avengers event it kind of showed how like in that one event Avengers No Surrender was all about teamwork and all coming together and yay we did it and the last few pages of this book 
the whole spread of all the Avengers being there, some of that weren't even in the stories, all coming together and beating the bad guy, and it's all joyous, and they're all just like getting bloody and punching and everything. I love that. That's what this story brought together. It showed how many heroes who don't even really work together sometimes can really come together, make a difference, keep life going until the big brains basically figure it out, how to solve everything, and then everything gets solved, and it's all hunky-dory, and we get to go on to see what else happens later and all the other stuff. Yeah, and uh, I love this basic, I love the Avengers Assemble moments. There's actually two of them. There is one in space with Wiccan, Captain Marvel, and Human Torch when Wiccan's doubting himself and he really wished he had Hulking there with him. And he's like, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this and I don't know if this is something that is within my wheelhouse. Well, Human Torch being able to go supernova and, you know, Captain Marvel being able to go binary, they're there to support him and alleviate some of the pressure of having to do it all on his own and Wiccan got his Avengers Assemble moment. He told him, what's an Avenger? Always an Avenger. And just seeing him say Avengers Assemble was so beautiful, so touching. And had so much weight to it too because even when he was a young Avenger, he never got to say Avengers Assemble. So that was major. And then seeing where the big battle breaks out with all the splash pages, once the, the curse of the empath thing broke and all the uh, Kree and the scrolls realized that they were being manipulated Manipulated and realized that they needed to fight together against the Kutati that had just been taken over, there was another biggest Avengers Assemble moment, which was beautiful because you see all everyone fighting from everywhere. People that were in the Savage Lands, you see Captain America fly down from the his, his health carrier, and there's the big fight scenes. The big epicness that everyone always wants from these stories. <laughs> Part of what I think is affecting our ability to interact with the New Mutants as a title is most of the most significant runs of New Mutants functioned as a daughter title to a Mother X book. So classic New Mutants was secondary to Uncanny, and then it kind of went off on its own thing. We got Legion, we had the Vilsenkevich years, and they were spectacular. You had appearances from people, but it didn't quite gel back together till Magneto took over the school. And then the kids belonged to X-Factor, and those years were kind of memorable. And then the kids were with Cable, and it became this grittier book, and it turned into X-Force. Well, then the Gen X kids sprung up, and unfortunately, outside of the major events, Gen X tends to get forgotten exactly what happened, exactly who joined when. The next time the New Mutants were significant was the pages of New X-Men, where there was a secondary title. This continued through New X-Men Academy X as the secondary title to Astonishing X-Men, and so on and so forth. Without an anchor book, New Mutants tends to flounder. And without the satisfactory binding of Hickman's narrative, this New Mutants just sort of flounders. We come to an end of Marvel's most recent crossover and their first crossover I got to experience as it was happening. And I don't want to say it was disappointing because I don't think that's a fair word to use. I guess it's more a confused sentiment of what was the narrative supposed to be? Were they able to really achieve it? And what actually happened besides Teddy and Billy talking about getting married? I think, while I don't really know who Teddy is as a character... I was expecting a much more larger role for him to play in this, and it really felt like he was a lame duck king. New Mutants 12, I think, wanted to do something good in making parallels to 
what it means of having information and feigning ignorance, but I think it might be sending the wrong message when it comes to how to handle justice versus revenge and leave those schemes to me, Emily Thorne. That being said, I think the ending for New Mutants 12 was absolutely beautiful, allowing Glob Herman to express his emotions and what it means for a man slash boy to be able to express his emotions and show them that it's okay. Kyle, what are we covering next time? So next week, we will be covering Marauders number 12, X-Factor number 3, and X-Force number 12. And Josh, until you return to the hallowed halls of Krakoa, where can everybody find you online? Tell us a little bit more about your site. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel. That's Asleep at the W-E-I-L. And my website is the same name, Asleep at the W-E-I-L.com. I've got a nice catalog of uh, deep dive uh, back issue recaps. I've got some reviews of X-Men trades and hardcovers. I've got a nice catalog of fan-made X-Men tees that you can find, including some really, really sweet designs by our buddy Juan Chango ATX. And I got a new feature, uh, which is a gallery. Uh, the first one up is X Factor Volume 1, and it's got all 149 issues in a cover gallery that's easy to load and features short, blurbable, spoiler-filled recaps uh, so you can easily scan through and find which issue was the first appearance of this character or, you know, the third time this character died uh, and so forth. Love it. Think it's amazing. Can't wait to check more of it out. And Kyle, until we come back, where can everybody find you? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Maddie, where can everybody find you? You can find me fucking up some doxers over on Instagram at, at the basely covetous man. Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me having a good old clandestine operation at a bar at the very early morning getting drinks served to me by Annalee over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML, all the feeds of this show, X for Podcast, as well as Too Fast, Too Forever, all summer long. I want to give a big special thanks to Rod and Chongo for showing up and talking a little bit more about Empire for us this episode. Don't forget to check out those two showing up on this show going forward. And guys, it goes without saying, but just in case somebody in the back needs to hear it again, Black lives matter, trans dreams matter, and you need to vote like your weakest friend's life depends on it, because this election cycle, it sure as fuck does. And, guys, until we return, keep those Cohen lights lit and those gateways open, and we'll see ya. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.